Is there anybody here with us tonight? Can you make a noise to let us know that you're here? Can't sleep? You came to the right place. Cozy in, because we have an eerie night ahead of us. I'm Sydney. And I'm JC. And we are not afraid. Before we proceed, a word of caution for those who go looking for any of these cryptids. Most, if not all, of these creatures have been identified as dangerous. Please practice safety in numbers, and if you do happen to spot one of these creatures, make sure you are alert uh, and alert your group and quickly but safely leave the area. Viewer discretion is advised due to the nature of some of these cryptids causing harm or even death to some humans. Did you know that the Komodo dragon was once considered a cryptid after a Dutch pilot crash-landed on the island of Komodo and reported seeing a 13-foot lizard? Nobody believed him. The discovery of the Komodo dragon varies, but the point is, until the first live Komodo dragon was brought to the Amsterdam Zoological Garden in 1926, nobody believed in their existence because a 13-foot lizard sounds impossible. All cryptids sound impossible because, by definition, cryptozoology is the science of hidden animals. This includes the possible existence of known animals in areas in which they are not supposed to be, and the existence of presumed extinct animals. In other words, cryptozoologists are interested in animals that aren't entirely known or understood, in addition to the monsters that many believe are more fiction than fact, such as Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. For our purposes, we will focus on the latter. For this episode, we have narrowed our scope to include only cryptids of the eastern Midwest, including Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. We will cover the western Midwest in a future episode. We have also excluded all Bigfoot species and sea creatures to also be covered separately in future episodes. Some of, the, some of these we found are very mainstream with a multitude of encounters and others are simply local legends that have very few encounters. Regardless, we have done our best to dig up the history, descriptions, and reported interactions with each of these creatures. Whether they exist or not is up for you to decide. Personally, I am not committed to their existence, but I'm also not ruling it out entirely since we don't have evidence to prove or disprove their existence. But that's what makes this topic so appealing. Who knows, maybe one day we will have the proof we need to knock another creature off the fiction list and add it to the fact list. Welcome to I'm Not Afraid of the Dark, but cryptids of the Midwest frighten me. So we have decided to split this up by state, based on the states I had just listed for you, not in any particular order, uh, but JC and I have both divided the states and each researched our own respective uh, cryptids at each state. And so first, I'm going to start with the state of Minnesota, which has one mainstream cryptid that I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of. Uh, there were some other ones, but most of these fell into that sea creature or uh, Bigfoot category. And some were just so, so little known that I couldn't find a whole lot on them at all. So my focus for the state of Minnesota is the Wendigo. And I know this has been done in a lot of movies and TV shows, which I'll talk about. So this might be one of the most 
familiar cryptids, um, at least in the 21st century. So the Wendigo is found in the northern woods slash Great Lakes region of Minnesota through central Canada, and it is described as a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it is thought to be entirely made of ice, and its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes. That's how the Algonquin tribe described this creature. It is a, described by the Ojibwe as a large creature as tall as a tree with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. Each description varies, but generally is described as having glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, terrible claws, and overly long tongues with either yellowish skin or covered in hair. Skills and powers include stealth, a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory, and can control the weather through the use of dark magic. Now, a little bit of history about the Wendigo. It is associated with cannibalism, murder, and insatiable greed. So it is known, again, by the Algonquin and Ojibwe tribes, among many others, and created when a human resorts to cannibalism in order to survive. So that's how we can create Wendigos, just by being in that situation. Humans who show greed or gluttony are also at risk of being possessed by the Wendigo. And are cursed to wander, the Wendigos are cursed to wander the land looking for humans to feast on, or they will starve to death. Some tribes performed a satirical ceremony, dance, during times of famine to reinforce the seriousness of the Wendigo. And the last known ceremony was performed at length Wendigo in Northern Minnesota. And the Wendigo, most probably the most modern thing about it is that it is associated with Wendigo psychosis, which is a modern medical term used to describe people, particularly in the Great Lakes and Canada region, who have the craving for human flesh and an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals. This is a real medical thing named after uh, this legend of the Wendigo. So reports of Wendigo psychosis date back more than a hundred years. So this is a really, really old legend that's been around and is still around to this day uh, through Wendigo psychosis. There have been a couple of encounters that I found. Um, the first one near Rasu in Northern Minnesota, the Wendigo was spotted numerous times in the late 1800s through the 1920s, and each time it was followed by an unexpected death until it was seen no more. Sightings are still reported from time to time in Northern Minnesota and around the Ontario, Canada region, and the Wendigo remains part of mainstream culture, inspiring characters in Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, and a fictional monster of the same name in Marvel Comics, the Wendigo has also made appearances in hit TV shows such as Teen Wolf, Supernatural, Blood Ties, Charmed, Grimm, and Hannibal, and has even been characterized in the video games in Until Dawn and Fallout 76. It doesn't really seem that hard to become a Wendigo, you know? It, no, it really doesn't. As soon as you started reading that off, I just thought to myself, Jeffrey Dahmer? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and even think about it. So 
my first thought was, you know, there are times and have been times in human history where people are in an impossible situation where, you know, you either eat the guy next to you or you both die. Mm-hmm. And in which case, you know, what do you, you either both die and you're both dead or you eat him and you become a Wendigo. And, you know, I don't know what's worse. Yeah. That's especially the case that the Donner party had to face. I mean, foof. like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, exactly. Like it's just a it's a lose lose situation. Do I want to become this evil spirit and have to go around eating other people, or do I just want to die with the rest of my family here? Oh man. Right. So next, we're going to be moving on to uh, Wisconsin, and as Sydney kind of stated, uh, some of these uh, don't have too terribly much information to go along with them because they're more so local legends. Uh, and so kind of going through the states that I have today, a lot more of them are more local legends than they are anything else. Uh, but hopefully at the very least you kind of get a kick out of, uh, hearing about some cryptids that you didn't know about. Uh, so this creature that we're going to be talking about has uh, not only been wandering the areas of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, but also northern Illinois and even as far north as Vancouver Island, Canada. Uh, this beast, although has never been seen transforming, at one point also made headlines as a werewolf. However, if you ask the folks at Elkhorn, they will tell you it's the beast of Bray Road. Uh, the first sighting was reported in 1936 on Bray Road, hence the name given to the bipedal cryptid. Uh, although I was able to locate the date, no further evidence could really be found uh, on my part as to who first saw the beast. Uh, but many locals have reported seeing this beast and many more wandered to the area in search of this dog-like creature. It's said to stand uh, in an upright position, but can also run, walk on all fours. Um Typically, when it is seen, it's completely covered in a brownish gray fur, uh, the snout of a wolf, uh, but more so the body of a very uh, well-endowed man, like very muscular. Uh, But that's really all the more I could find um, on that. Uh, Most of the other sources were very unreliable, just kind of teenagers sharing their, oh, me and this guy went out and tried to see it and we thought we saw it but it was just a wild dog kind of thing um so kind of moving on we're gonna go to uh thunderbirds um and these are kind of one of my favorite cryptids uh just because it's a massive bird and i love birds (laughs) um but uh it was really known by the native americans who really settled these lands uh and they were known as protectors uh, to humankind from all the evil spirits uh, trying to plague the land to rid it of the humans. Um, these na- The creatures' names were given to them by the Native Americans, who affectionately called them Hoo-Hucks, which means Thunderbird. Um, this was because of their large wings that sounded like thunder when flapped. Uh, these birds are said to have long necks like swans, forked tails, bright colored feathers, and talons so large they can pick whales out of the ocean with ease. These birds are also said to bring storms along with them whenever they appear. Sightings of these massive birds have taken place all the way from uh, the early 1800s to more recent times, such as uh, 2010, although not much information could be founded uh, could be found on the reports of the uh, 2010 sighting um but it is 
also important to note that not only have these creatures just been seen in Wisconsin, uh, but many other parts of the United States as well. So not even just the region that we're really covering today. That's true. And I'm actually going to cover this later on. I believe when I get to Illinois, uh, there's a lot of distinct Thunderbird encounters that are uh, very similar to the way that you described, but also Mm -hmm. different. I'm very excited to hear your perspective about that. Before we get to that, we're going to go with another one that I found that is such a popular icon. They built a statue for him at Country Fest. Um, So this one's a bit odd, even for a cryptid. Um, This creature was discovered in the early 1800s, possibly by the lumberjacks who worked the woods. Um, However, its popularity didn't truly increase until approximately 1893, when Eugene Shepard, a lumberjack and resort owner, brought out more evidence than anyone before. Not only was Eugene Shepard the first person to give a description of the beast, but he was also able to capture photographic evidence and was given the honor of naming the creature the Hodag, uh, which in order to get this creative name, he combined the words horse and dog. (laughs) very very creative (laughs) Uh, the hodag is typically described as having the head of a frog with a grinning face of an elephant the back like that of a stegosaurus short legs with huge claws and a very long tail that also resembles a stegosaurus's uh, with the little spikes going on at the end there rumors also state that the creature can reach up to 7 feet long uh, with a 30 inch tail and weighs in at approximately 200 pounds. Despite this description, however, most are very loose on the interpretations of the creature just because everybody sees something different. Um, Shepard also claimed to have killed a hodag with dynamite after an unsuccessful attempt with firearms, water guns filled with poisoned water, and uh, hunting dogs and a team of local men. Three years later, Eugene started a roadshow with the supposed hodag that he had captured with the help of bear wrestlers, and chloroform. However, a group of scientists from the Smithsonian Institute caught wind of this story and decided to investigate, and it was at that point that Eugene decided to come clean it that he had built his own hodag with wood, oxen, leather, and wires, much to many disappointment. Despite the hoax, however, the hodag had been around long before Mr. Shepard had more than likely ever laid eyes on his first one. Uh, The hodag are said to have been oxen that worked hard for the lumberjacks that passed away only to come back as these horrific creatures angry about their previous lives as slaves to humans seeking revenge. The hodag was known for killing oxen, white bulldogs, which are believed to be able to cure all of the hodag's alignments. Uh, that was something that Eugene Shepard had stated, but apparently he only ate, they only eat uh, white bulldogs on Sundays out of all days. Um, (laughs) and even sometimes they would eat the lumberjacks themselves if they came too near. Uh, some claim these beasts can also breathe fire and will stink of buzzards and skunks when they're near. Uh, this being said, some have also claimed to hear its mournful cries at night and believes it's caused by the fact that the creatures are aware that they are considered hideous and will go into a melancholy state. Man, I relate to this one way too much. The Hodag is mostly now just a tourist attraction in the town of uh, Rhinelanders uh, and the town of 
Rhinelander's mascot, excuse me. However, many locals still believe that this creature still roams the woods and will occasionally venture out to see if they can get a peek at, at this strange cryptid. So I can't get past the point that he, he named after a horse and a dog. <laughs> and then described it as having the head of a frog. Yeah. And an elephant. Yeah. And a stegosaurus. Like, real creative there. I mean, it was creative, but at the same time, like... <laughs> I mean, back then, though, you got to remember, they were doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Like, they had all kinds of drugs in their medicine, so they probably were seeing all this stuff. <laughs> That's, that's a fair <laughs> <point>. <laughs> Anywho, uh, moving on to Illinois, we're coming back to those Thunderbirds, um, and I actually found several encounters in on Thunderbirds in the Illinois um, region. They are f- reportedly found from Appalachia and Black Forest of Pennsylvania to the plains of Illinois, so um, this doesn't really cover that region that uh, JC talked about earlier in Wisconsin, so this might be a different species of Thunderbirds, perhaps, who knows. But they are reported to be large, dark-colored, gliding birds with the wingspan over 50, 15 feet associated with the condor, which is the largest known soaring bird accepted by ornithologists. The Andean condor in the Andes Mountains has a wingspan of 10 feet. So this is a real bird in the Andes Mountains. It has a wingspan of 10 feet. In California, the condor is slightly smaller with a wingspan of nine feet, and the Andean condor is black with white upper wings, a bald head, and white feather, a white feathered collar, and the California condor lacks the white collar. They are known to kill small and or sick animals for food. So this distinction, this description is just to say you know, if this Thunderbird, if people really think it is a condor, we're trying to show the similarities and the differences here. So Thunderbirds are reported closely associated with the now extinct Teratorn, which most commonly had a wingspan of 11 to 12 feet. So that's quite a bit bigger than these condors we mentioned. But one set of fossils found in Argentina, um, a specimen with a wingspan of 24 feet. Now this is the Teratorn now. Uh, this distinct creature. And the largest, this is the largest flying bird known to science. And we're not in- entirely sure what teratorns looked like, uh, but you can tell based on that that they are very, very large creatures. So, Thunderbirds have been reported since the beginning of recorded history and are often found in Native American folklore, particularly in the Cahokia tribe, which depicted the beast in cliff drawings. The Cahokia named these beings Thunderbirds after the sound they made when they flapped their wings, which JC mentioned earlier, it's that thunder-like sound. Thunderbirds are also part of the Lakota tribe folklore, who believe they embody the supreme being that created all life on Earth. Among the cliff drawings of the Cahokia tribe is that of the Piazza bird, which is found outside of, guess where, Alton, Illinois. I about pooped when I read that. If you've listened back to our episode... Uh, two, when we talk about small towns, you will know that there's a whole lot of nonsense and a whole lot of paranormal activity going on in Alton, Illinois. So that was really, I just couldn't believe that. Jesuit missionary Jacques Marquette describes the drawings as, quote, two painted monsters, which at first made us afraid and upon which the boldest savage dare not long rest their eyes. They are as large as a cat. 
They have horns on their heads like those of a deer, a horrible look, red eyes, a beard like a tiger, a face somewhat like a man, a body covered with scales, and so long a tail that it winds all the way around the body, passing above the head and going back between the legs, ending in a fish's tail. So we just described every creature on the planet as this one Thunderbird thing here. So, encounters. Keep this image in your mind of how we describe the Thunderbird as we talk about these encounters. So in the 1940s, there were numerous sightings of large birds that were reported in the Alton area. One by an army colonel who stated, quote, I thought there was something wrong with my eyesight, but it was most definitely a bird and not a glider or a jet plane. It appeared to be flying northeast, and from the movement of the object and its size, I figured it had to be a bird of tremendous size. Now, this is an army colonel, so this isn't just um, lumberjacks this time or just two um, casual workers. This is a guy who you can assume has some credibility. On April the 24th, there were even more sightings in which many, many eyewitnesses reported the birds to be the size of small airplanes and way larger than any bird they had ever seen. The painting of the piazza has since been redone and can be seen today on the bluff just north of Alton on the Great River Road. So if you're in that area or you go in the Alton area, go to this Great River Road, ask a local where it's at, and you should be able to see this piazza bird, which um, this sort of depicts what these Thunderbirds kind of look like. Now, one of the most famous cryptid encounters occurred in Lawndale, Illinois, on July 25th, 1977, when 10-year-old Marlon Lowe was playing outside. Eyewitnesses report two giant birds passing over when one swooped down, scooped up the boy, carried him a few feet, and dropped him, probably because they were alarmed by his mother's screams. All seven witnesses report the exact same story and describe the two large birds as being black with long white ringed necks, long curled beaks, and a wingspan of at least 10 feet. That kind of sounds like some of those birds we were describing earlier in the Andes and California. In an interview later, Marlon's mother Ruth stated, quote, I'll always remember how huge that thing was bending its white ringed neck. It seemed to be trying to peck at Marlin as it was flying away. She described the birds to be the size of an ostrich, but looked more like a condor. Several other sightings followed this encounter in late July and early August throughout Illinois before sightings publicly ceased in 1977 after officials began telling newspapers that people were simply seeing turkey vultures. Ruth maintains that there weren't any birds in the area that were capable of picking up her son and attempting to fly away. If we are saying it's the condor, um, that still classifies it as a cryptid by definition, because remember, part of that definition is um, that they are known animals, but they're not known to be in this part of the country. They're not known to be in Illinois. In March, April, July, and August, an irregular migration of large birds is reported each year believed to be Thunderbirds. So this is just a yearly reoccurrence thing that keeps happening every year in these months. Uh, what is believed to be Thunderbirds fly into Illinois. So where are they coming from? Are they these condors or are they some other creature entirely that um, we don't, we're not sure we thought was extinct or we don't think exists anymore. What do you do as a mother though? When you watch your 10-year-old son get swooped up by a big old bird. I, oh goodness, like I, I've seen big old birds try to snatch animals up, but never a child. Like, 
you, you don't really hear of that. Right. And that was what was going through my head when I researched this is, you know, it's frightening enough if I was outside with my dog and a big, you know, hawk came over, picked him up and, and carried him off. But he's, you know, he's 19 pounds. That's one thing. But a child is, you know, at least 50, 60, 70 pounds, depending on, you know, how big the kid is. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's not going to be your Cooper's hawk trying to get that. No. <laughs> And I mean, you know, kids don't make it. He was what, 12, I think I said. By 12, how many parents can still pick their kid up and carry him around for very long? Yeah, without going, oof, you're getting too heavy for that. Yeah, exactly. So for a, a creature to be able to do that just tells you how big it is. And all the eyewitnesses, like, that's that's too many to be. And they all have the exact same description. Like, so how on how on earth? do you deny something like that that's that's so fascinating right well and in the the paranormal field we always say you know that if it happens once you know maybe it's a coincidence but when multiple people are saying the exact same thing mm -hmm. and they're not like in a big room convincing each other it's just one person walks in and says you know this is what it looked like and then you know two three four five six seven people now said the same thing that's that's just weird yeah so, continuing in the state of Illinois, our next cryptid is what's known as the Enfield Monster. And he is found in Enfield, Illinois, hence the name, and is described as having three legs on it, a short body, two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. It stood four and a half feet tall and was a grayish color and was trying to get into the house. This is how Henry McDaniel, who we'll talk about here in a minute, described this beast. This beast was sighted between April and May of 1973, and researchers at Western Illinois University actually studied the case and concluded that there was no evidence of the beast outside of firsthand accounts and that the media had blown the claims out of proportion. So they, it did grab their attention. They did look into it, but they couldn't find any real substantial evidence, which seems to be the case with most of these cryptids. Um, but like I said at the beginning, that doesn't mean we don't have any evidence to prove they don't exist, but we also don't have a lot of evidence to prove they exist. So again, you know, sort of take these stories with a grain of salt, but here is um, the encounter with Henry McDaniel. So he had returned home one night with his wife. Their two kids were left at home horrified at what they had experienced while their parents were out of town. They claimed that something was scratching at the door and had tried to break in. Henry later heard this scratching noise and expected to see a dog or a cat, but instead saw the grayish beast. He ran to get his 22 and a flashlight and fired at the beast. He claims to have hit it as he heard the creature scream, but there was no sign of the creature ever found other than the scratches left on the side of the house and six-toed footprints. A few weeks later, McDaniel saw the creature again wandering along the railroad tracks. Word of his encounters quickly spread as he was interviewed by radio stations and the story received quite a bit of news coverage, including an article by the Chicago Daily News. This attracted thrill seekers and monster hunters who quickly swarmed the area, much to the sheriff's disapproval. Eventually, a group of men were charged with hunting violations for firing their weapons in town. Police received a claim that a young boy was attacked by a similar beast just 30 minutes before the McDaniel encounter. In this case, the monster ripped the boy's clothes, shredded his shoes, and left claw marks on his arms. 
but the creature could still not be found. By some accounts, they say that this uh, claim by the child was faked. Other accounts said it was not. Between 1941 and 1942, there were reports of a similar being in Mount Vernon, Illinois, which is just 40 miles away from Enfield. And these reports include a leaping beast that was responsible for numerous animal deaths throughout the town. Descriptions include a baboon-like creature that can hop 20 to 40 feet at once. There is no evidence to prove the existence of either or a connection between the two. Regardless, there have been no reports or sightings in some 40 years. There seems to be two common theories for believers of the infield monster. First, it is some sort of alien or extraterrestrial, or second, it is some sort of demon, or maybe a mixture of the two. I have no idea. Um, neither of those sound very alien-like to me or very demonic-like in, in relation to some of the other stories we talked about, but out of all the reports I read, those were the two things that people said. It's either an alien or a demon. So, what an interesting tip. Like, I mean, I'm all for aliens, <laughs> but like... What an interesting, like, when I think alien, I think, like, the little gray Martians with the big old heads, big old eyeballs, just kind of, like, putzing around doing their thing, like, take me to your leader kind of stuff. Not, not, like, beating the crap out of people. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough. I've never met an alien, so I couldn't tell you, but. True. <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> So we got two left, and these are really short. I could not find a whole lot because these are super local cryptids, and I did so decide to include them because I found enough, uh, but not a whole lot at all. And so the first one is the Wolfman of Chestnut Mountain. So the Wolfman of Chestnut Mountain is located in Galena, in the Galena area, and the only thing I found on it was this one encounter, and so I'm going to read it exactly as it was written. So as a reporter in Wisconsin in the 1980s, Godfrey heard stories about a wolfman consistent with the 2010 tale. The woman is driving with her fiancé near Chestnut Mountain. They're on a back road. They see a wolf walking on hind legs. It looks at them for a moment, then leaps off at great speed. I think there are more sightings like that, but people don't want to be ridiculed. Some are in denial. They don't want to admit what they see. So this is just some reporter that heard this story of um, as far as I know, every article, every source I found had, gave the exact same story. So there was just one encounter, one woman's driving. She saw this wolf-like creature hop across in front of her car, and that was the end of that. So not a whole lot there to really go off of, but uh, what would be interesting there is if we keep seeing reports like this, then I think I can get more fuel behind it or more credibility. But let's move on to the abominable swamp slob. I just like that name. So I was immediately drawn to see what this was about. And so these are located in the Carbondale area. And, quote, not to be confused with the Stump Pond Monster or Tuttle Bottoms Monster, also local legends that I didn't include because those are really similar to, like, Bigfoot-type creatures. But the elusive, <laughs> as they abbreviated it, ASS, as it was cheekily named by late lore expert John Keel, author of the Mothman Prophecies, is occasionally associated with vertical descending lights implying an extraterrestrial. So we're back to aliens. If so, legend says it's a smelly alien. The most famous Illinois ASS is the Murfreesboro Mud Monster. Spotted throughout the summer of 1973 when witnesses included a four-year-old boy who told his parents 
According to the alternate travel guide, Weird Illinois, a big white ghost was in the backyard, and the neighbors supposedly saw it too. So from my understanding, the abominable swamp slobs, or the ASS, is sort of a like breed, like Bigfoot, and then there are um, more specific, like different types. So like the Murfreesboro Mud Monster is a type of abominable swamp slob. That's how I understood it. Again, I couldn't find a whole lot on it. Both of those were just quotes out of an article that I found what people supposedly reported seeing this ASS in their yard. So the next state we're going to cover is Indiana. Um, and for Indiana, uh, Indiana is home to an ungodly amount of cryptids, uh, in all honesty. But the only one that I could really find that wasn't Bigfooty or sea creaturey uh, was the puck wedgie. Uh, which, if I'm saying that wrong, so be it. I'm going to say Pukwudgie for the entirety of the rest of this recording. Um, <laughs> so this scripture, uh, scripture, yeah. <laughs> this cryptid receives the honor of being one of North America's oldest cryptids. Uh, they have a certain distrust and dislike for humans, supposedly due to a Native American tribe which I believe uh, from my research was the Delaware tribe, uh, they decided that they were more of a bother than a help and asked a local giant whom they adored uh, to help remove the creatures from the area, uh, which they successfully did, but slaughtered many in the process, causing this rift between humans and Pukwudgies to this day. Um, there have been many sightings uh, of these two to three foot uh, pale blonde hair, wild men with glowing gray skin uh, from Native American times all the way to present times. Legends also say that these little humanoids can turn themselves into animals to cause a bit of mischief. Uh, in 1927, uh, Paul Sturtzman spotted one of these creatures when he was about 10 years old. He claimed it was a little man with pale blonde hair and very large round ears that was only about as half as tall as what he was. Uh, this started Mr. Sturtzman's fascination with the little creatures. He not only got to see the mythical creature once, but multiple times over the course of his life, driving him to write a book and interview others about their similar experiences. Uh, most of the folks that Mr. Sturtzman interviewed remained anonymous, but that was not the case for one older woman who wanted her story to be known. Eloise H. was playing in the park one day when a strange group of small men wandered over to her, seemingly curious about what she was doing. She recalled they had very high-pitched voices and spoke a language she did not understand. She had a very similar experience later on in life while she was hiding alone in the nearby woods. That being said, there are many that, who believe that although the Pukwudgie may be mischievous, they are not harmful to humans and may provide help to one in need. However, there are still those who claim that if one of these creatures spots you and or you disturb them, they will follow you around and uh, attempt to take your children, cause you to go into a deep depression, and even possibly drive one to commit suicide. So if you do see one of these creatures, it's probably best just to stay away. Sounds a lot more alien-like than anything else we've talked about. Yeah, I know. This sounds more alien than the supposed aliens. Yeah. Like and little... nobody really knows where they came from either. According to all the research I did, they're very much so, like, they've just been here this whole time. And they just never left. And the Native Americans just saw them as more of a bother and a hindrance uh, than anything else. And so they were like, well, we want you out of this land and not of our territory. 
So that's, I mean. Okay then. Works for me. So. <laughs> so we are quickly wrapping up our uh, checklist here and we have just two states left, Michigan and Ohio. So first of all, I'm going to talk to you about three somewhat well-known uh, cryptids in the state of Michigan. Personally, out of the states that I did, I found Michigan to be the most fascinating, which is why I saved it for last, because my favorite cryptid that I have researched that I didn't know about prior to research is in here. And it's going to be the last one I talk about because I just think it's so cool how the town handles it. So first, let's start with probably the most notorious uh, cryptid in the state of Michigan, and that is the dog man. Now, for reference, there's also reportedly a dog man in Minnesota, but when I went to do research on that, I couldn't find a lot of evidence or substantial claims and encounters with the dog man of Wisconsin. Um, so there are dog man reports in several states, but uh, Michigan seems to be the most famous. There's a lot of books and movies and stuff um, based on this Michigan dog man. So the Michigan Dogman is reported in Wexford County and in, north, in the northwest of the Lower Peninsula. He is reported to be seven foot tall with blue or amber eyes, bipedal, canine-like, with the torso of a man and a human-like scream. And is reported to stalk the Manistee River area since the days of the Adawa tribe. And appears in 10-year cycles in years ending in seven. So in 1887, Two lumberjacks report seeing a creature with a man's body and a dog head. In 1937, Robert Fortney of Paris, Michigan, was attacked by five wild dogs, one of which had five legs. In the 1950s, there were similar reports in Allegan County. In 1967, similar reports in the Manistee area and Cross Village. In the 1970s, Mike Agrusa, a young boy, captured a video of what is believed to be the dog man. This footage is known as the Gable film. However, Agrusa later admitted that the film was a hoax. So I don't know how he, how young he was and how he faked that, but apparently he does come out later and says, hey, um, this was fake. And in 1987, Steve Cook in the WTCM-FM recorded The Legend, which is a song about the creature in sightings. And this really caused the dog man to gain steam and really kind of made it mainstream and Michigan culture in the surrounding area. And in 2011, the movie Dogman premiered in the Traverse City State Theater and used parts of the Gable film to depict these uh, reported sightings of the legend. Now, moving on to the Wahila. The Wahila is interesting. Um, we're going back to Native American folklore where it originates. And the Wahila is kind of has a similar description. It's described as a wolf like beast the size of a full grown bear over one meter tall with a large white head, jaws, paws, and a shaggy white coat and is reported to be an evil spirit that can manifest anytime and anywhere. The Wahila is found in Alaska, Northwest Canada, and Northern Michigan and reportedly has approached campers and bit their heads off. The Nahani National Park in Canada is nicknamed the Headless Valley for this reason. Man, you you can't just throw that at somebody and, like, expect them to be prepared. Like, <laughs> I thought you were going to, like, ease into that whenever you got to it, but no. <laughs> nope. Oh, man. That's... What a cryptid. 
So, um, apparently, the Wahila roam and kill in a path that stretches from Alaska to Michigan. So they just roam around in this path, Alaska to Michigan, Michigan to Alaska, and bite people's heads off. Some speculate that the creature is a descendant of the pre-Ice Age amphicyanide, which is not a drug. It is a bear-slash-dog mix that lived more than one and a half million years ago. 1.5 million years ago. Wait a minute. Was that a real creature then? Yes, there was a bear-dog mix that lived back a long time ago. Oh. Huh. However, um, the conclusion that people kind of seemed to lean towards when I was researching this was that it was just a really big wolf. And animals closer to the poles are typically larger and heavier than their counterparts in the tropics or in the rest of the world. So it is possible that this could just be a very, very large breed of wolf that maybe isn't documented or maybe we don't know about or maybe... um, just outsiders don't know about and some of the people in the area are kind of familiar with. So there was a lot of uh, footage, like pictures of people uh, that took pictures of these giant wolf-looking things, but uh, they all just claim to be giant wolves. So that's probable, but who knows? Maybe there's a man-eating cryptid around there somewhere. (laughs) However, moving on to the third and final Michigan cryptid, this is my favorite just because of how the town responds to it. So this is cool. So this is called the Nine Rouge, and which is French for Red Dwarf, also known as the Demon of the Strait. It is found in the Detroit, Michigan area, and is described as a dwarf that is red in the face with bright glistening eyes and sharp pointed teeth. So I have a like a Satan image in my head when I read this, a very short state, Satan dwarf thing. That's, and if you see any of the photographs, if you look up the name Rouge, that's kind of what it looks like, a little devilish thing. So other reports include a creature with red or black fur covering an animal-like body with the face of an old man, red eyes, and rotten teeth. Origins come from early French settlers and, of course, the Native Americans. So remnants are found in the Norman French tales of the Luton, which is a hobgoblin. A hobgoblin is a spirit creature of the hearth, a hearth meaning a fireplace, that is associated with mischief. The Native American culture describes this as an impish offspring of the stone god. Its presence is said to be a sign of misfortune for the city. For example, the creature appeared on July 30th, 1763, before the Battle of Bloody Run, in which 58 British soldiers were killed by Native Americans. The surrender of Detroit in the War of 1812 is also blamed on the name Rouge, Two utility workers claim to have seen the creature before the 1967 Detroit riots, and the name Rouge was reported before the 1976 ice storm, which a lot of people refer to um, as the blizzard of 76, the notorious blizzard of 76, and Nain Rouge was there. So Nain Rouge has become a part of Detroit culture. Each spring, the city holds a community festival and costume parade called the March du Nain Rouge, And during this festival, the town hosts a parade in which the creature is chased out of the city. And at the end of the parade, an effigy of Nain Rouge is destroyed, which is said to banish the evil spirit from the city for another year. Spectators are encouraged to wear costumes so that when the creature returns, he will not recognize those who helped to banish him from the city. 
So from 2012 to 2018, this parade has drawn a crowd of more than 5,000 people every year. So it is a very popular, popular parade. Lastly, the Nain Rouge has become so famous in the Detroit metro area that the Detroit Beer Company in downtown Detroit has named one of their lagers the Detroit Dwarf. And additionally, Woodbury Wine of Detroit in the metro area has a wine called Nain Rouge Red. That's so fascinating to know that, like, even in... Because you hear about those kinds of festivals and parades, like over in Germany, they do similar things uh, during Christmas time uh, to get rid of Krampus, uh, to chase him off, kind of. Uh, like, you hear about that stuff in other countries, but not so much in North America. So it's really cool to know that there's something like that that we do as well. Like, that's that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's why he was my favorite cryptid, just because that was, well, the description of him is just kind of just so different than all the others. Like, it's not really that animal-like. It's just like a little, a little baby demon or a little baby <laughs> Satan. And the, <laughs> and, just, and just the fact that they're, they like go all out and even the people that attend wear costumes and everything, like, it was just super cool to me. And I really want to go. That just, it sounds like fun. It, it does. really does. I, I would definitely partake. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're going to dive into our last state now, uh, which is Sydney and I's home state, which is Ohio. Uh, and to start out with, we're going to kind of go with a bit of, another bit of an oddball, uh, but this one is absolutely, to me anyways, adorable nonetheless. And that is the Loveland Frogman, which is approximately three feet tall, has webbed toes and webbed hands and leathery skin. It is also said that like typical frogs have the little wrinkles that's uh, on top of their head where their hair would typically be is kind of where those wrinkles sit. The first sighting of this creature in more current time versus Native American lore was in May of 1955, around 3.30 a.m., by a gentleman who decided to remain anonymous. Uh, he had spotted three of these humanoid creatures standing on the road and decided to pull over to investigate. After about three minutes or so of watching, he decided to leave, but not before he witnessed one of the creatures remove a stick from his pouch and wave it above his head, creating sparks. Uh, this has led some folks to believe that uh, these cryptids can manipulate energy uh, and electricity. And then on March 3rd, 1972, the next sighting was reported by a local authority at approximately 1 a.m. Uh, the officer who who has also uh, chosen to remain anonymous was along uh, Riverside Road and was going towards Loveland when he spotted what looked like an animal alongside of the road. Uh, he reported that he had been driving slowly due to the icy conditions, but nonetheless had to slam on the brakes to avoid a wreck. Uh, once stopped, the site before the officer was baffling, to say the least, when he had believed this thing to possibly be a dog, uh, it turned out to be a rather large frog-like creature that, once flooded with the vehicle's headlights, stood on two legs, looked at the officer, and clambered over the guardrail and into the Ohio River. Um, how that thing was moving around 
while it was icy and cold out, it was beyond me. But not even two weeks later, another officer named Mark Matthews reported seeing this exact same creature with the exception of a tail. Uh, Matthews even claimed to have shot the beast before it once again climbed over the guardrail and disappeared into the river. However, uh, Officer Matthews came out in another report stating what he saw and shot was a tailless iguana. No one's really quite sure why his story changed. Uh, it may have been uh Due to the nerves settling after the incident, he realized that, oh, I actually saw this, like, I was just letting my mind get the best of me. Or it was possibly even the backlash from his pupils. Because uh, as you can imagine, especially being a male and the officer of the law, you're probably gonna get some criticism. You saw a big old frog man walking around, okay, sure you did, buddy. Like, you're probably gonna get some backlash for that kind of thing. Um and after these two sightings, uh, more and more folks of the Hamilton, Claremont, and Warren County started reporting this strange creature roaming the back roads and marshy areas of Ohio. And it was even spotted later in 2016 while a couple played Pokemon Go. <laughs> they actually took a picture of it, too, but it looks like just a little frog that's just kind of chilling in the water. I don't believe it at all. It just looks like a really close-up picture of a frog who's going like this. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right, though, about the officer. I mean, given that we believe his story to begin with, but I think that regardless whether he believed it or not, um, you're probably right in that he was getting a lot of backlash and like, hey, you're a police officer. You can't be going around spreading these crazy rumors. You're going to cause a panic and was either forced or just pressured into uh, revoking his story. Likely, I mean, because you and I both know, even as investigators, like, we get that a lot. Mm -hmm. Just, oh, you guys are crazy, just inducing panic. And it's like, no, no, if you paid attention to what goes on around you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but these next cryptids that we're going to talk about, uh, this actually, I'm not going to lie, it brought tears to my eyes kind of reading the story. I already kind of knew about them, but it's just, it's, it's just so sad. Um, there are two tales, uh, however, that uh, explain kind of how these cryptids came about. Um, both have a gentleman, though, whose name is Dr. Crow. And in the first one, it was... Uh, both take place in about the 1970s. Uh, Dr. Crow and his wife uh, had been charged with the care of a group of orphans. Little to anyone's knowledge, however, the couple began abusing these four children and performing terrible experience, experiments on them that caused their heads to swell, giving them the name Melonheads, uh, which is what the locals would call them, uh, even in the other story, which I didn't mention. But <laughs> After so long, though, that children grew tired of the abuse and decided to kill the doctor and his wife by setting the house on fire, making their escape into the woods. Once out of the hands of the terrible Dr. Crow and his wife, the children decided they should trust no one and at this point had slowly gone mad over the time that they were tortured. Now, the next story is more so the government's fault uh, for the tortured children, uh, but still, like I said, contains Dr. Crow and his wife. The government had been doing experiments on these children. However, they didn't really have a place for them. So instead of trying to put them somewhere, uh, they just kind of released them into the woods uh, around the Cleveland area. 
him with nowhere to go and no one to rely on, these children started wandering until they came across the house of Dr. Crow and his wife, who were two kindly older folks who allowed the children to live with them until Dr. Crow passed of natural causes. And then once again, just like in the other story, the house did catch fire and the children uh, were left to seek shelter in the woods. Um, sightings of these creatures have been scarce, yet that is commonly said to be because these children resorted to hunting wild game and cannibalism to stay alive. Uh, most of the sightings, however, do occur at night near the Crybaby Bridge area in Kirtland, Ohio, yet it is advised to stay away from that area at night. Um, it's always okay. Crybaby Bridge. It it's always crybaby bridge and i had to state that it's in kurtland because i have a crybaby bridge out here in dover i have a crybaby bridge out in millersburg like everybody has a crybaby bridge somewhere <laughs> yeah yep sure do and now kind of to wrap up uh our last cryptid for the day this is the crosswick monster and in may of 1882 two boys uh were fishing and reported a 30-foot yellow and white snake that had uh, arms, and it decided to come after them. Uh, this made headlines on May 29th in 1882, so it was a documented story. Um, and not only did poor Ed and Joe Lynch see the monster, but Joe also almost met an untimely end when the creature grabbed him and attempted to drag him off. The creature got only about 100 yards with the boy until a group of men, Jacob Horn, George Peterson, and Alan Jordan, uh, Jacob Horn being uh, the reverend of the area, uh, and the other two just being very well-known, very trustworthy men, had heard the commotion and came to investigate. Uh, whenever the monster noticed the men, it immediately dropped poor Joe and took off towards a tree to hide. And then later on uh, that same night, after they had taken Joe to the doctor to receive treatment, uh, a group of 60-plus men gathered with tools and weapons ready to fright, fight this creature. They chopped the tree down that the monster had scurried up and drove the Crosswick monster out of the area, chasing it through the hills back to where they believed its home was, which was a large rock pile where it disappeared, not returning to steal any more children. Uh, like I said, Joe was given proper medical, medical attention by Dr. L.C. Lurkins that he needed. Uh, however, as one can imagine, he was mostly in a state of shock, had a few cuts and bruises, and this poor boy suffered from spasms and convulsions for a while after this. Uh, Joe also ended up having to move out of state later on because so many people just kept questioning him and questioning him about the events that transpired on that day. Um, which, uh, as you could imagine, that would be, especially for a young boy, just traumatizing. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine. But with that being said, I would like to remind all of you that if you are going to go out on a cryptid hunt, please be safe and careful. However, if you do believe you have evidence, please reach out and let us know. We would love to see your evidence or hear your stories and perhaps even use them in our upcoming episodes. If you have any information on cryptids in the western Midwest, including the regions of North and South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, and Missouri, email us at notafraidpodcast2020 at gmail.com or message us on Facebook. 
These will be the focus of an upcoming episode, and we would love to hear from those with personal experience or firsthand accounts. Thank you for joining us. Tune in next time as we sit down with a very special guest to talk about psychic mediums and haunted dolls. We are not afraid. <laughs>